Jesus says, Father, forgive them. The soldiers gamble for his tunic. They put the charge above Christ's head. They're mocking Jesus. And Jesus says to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom concludes his current series in the New Testament titled, A Survey of the Life of Christ. Here in this study, we arrive at the final week of Jesus' earthly life, a week filled with memorable events and several important teachings. Scripture records how Jesus was nailed to a Roman cross for the sins of all who would ever believe in Him, a historic event documented in all four Gospels to prove that Jesus really did die and was buried that day in a tomb. But the story didn't end there. Thankfully, the Gospels record that three days later, Jesus was resurrected from the dead. No survey of the life of Christ would be complete without the joy of this glorious thought, the forgiveness of sins, so that you, believer, no longer have to bear them. Let's join Tom as he opens God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. There's a a portion of a secret meeting of the Sanhedrin recorded here in John 11. I wish I had time to take you through it. Undoubtedly, eyewitness testimony from Jesus' two followers that came from the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. But they also demanded, notice verse 57, that anyone who knew of Jesus' whereabouts turn him over to the authorities, had to report him. And in light of this, the people wondered if Jesus would come to the Feast of Passover. Verse 55, the Passover of the Jews was near. Many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. They were seeking for Jesus, and they were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Is he coming? They're after him. They're going to kill him. Will he come? Now, at this point, no one knew where Jesus was, but he had still become the chief topic of conversation. And when the time came for Passover, Jesus made his final journey to Jerusalem for Passover number 4, according to John chapter 12, verse 1. But he took a most unlikely route, but he does so for good reason. Now, look at this map. You, you see in the green area the city of Jerusalem, or maybe you'll be able to see it there. It's down in the southern area of Judea. Jesus in, is in Ephraim, just a few miles north of Jerusalem. Passover comes. He's going to go to Passover. So you tell me, if you Google map the closest path to Jerusalem, what do you do? You head directly south. This is easy. Not Jesus. What Jesus and his disciples do is when it's time for Passover, they head north through Samaria all the way up to Galilee the southern end of the Sea of Galilee, and there they join other Galilean pilgrims who are headed south to the Passover. A large group, and along the way, you can read about it, it's, it's fascinating to read, along the way, Jesus makes himself highly visible as this huge group of, of pilgrims comes down the Jordan Rift, down the Jordan Valley, 
toward Jerusalem. He's teaching, working miracles, and picking fights with the leaders. They traveled across the Jordan, and I mean that obviously in the best possible way. In other words, he's confronting their sin. They traveled across the Jordan into Perea, down the Jordan Rift Valley, toward, through Jericho, and then on to Jerusalem. But here's what happens. Jesus and his disciples stopped in Bethany. They stopped in Bethany apparently late Friday afternoon before the Passion Week. How do we know that? Well, John 12.1 says it was six days before the Passover. Now, if you use the Galilean method... Passover would begin at sunrise on Thursday. That allows for a Friday afternoon arrival in Bethany. So Jesus and the disciples, traveling with this huge group, they stopped two miles over the Mount of Olives in Bethany. The rest of the Galilean pilgrims that have traveled with them hurried on to Jerusalem. Bethany was not a large place, not a lot of places to stay there. They hurry on to Jerusalem on that Friday afternoon in order to get to their city and to their lodging before Sabbath began at sunset on Friday. And as the crowds arrived in Jerusalem late that Friday afternoon before sunset, they brought two important news items. Number one, Jesus is definitely coming. He was with us the entire way down the Jordan Rift Valley. And he stopped just over the Mount of Olives in Bethany, two miles away. But remember, they got there just before sunset on Friday when Sabbath began. So because of the Sabbath travel restrictions, nobody in Jerusalem could travel over the hill to Bethany during the Sabbath, and nobody in Bethany could travel to Jerusalem on the Sabbath. So... That made it likely that Jesus would enter the city of Jerusalem from Bethany where he was staying when? On Sunday morning. On Sunday morning. Which built up a huge anticipation among the people. Now that brings us to the Passion Week and the events of the last week of our Lord. I just want to walk these through with you briefly. On Sunday then, Jesus comes from Bethany down the Mount of Olives, on a, riding a donkey. You're familiar with the story in what we call the triumphal entry. What was the purpose of the triumphal entry? Listen, it was not, as classic dispensationalism teaches, to offer himself as king, and if they accepted him, to immediately set up his kingdom. Why do we know that? Because he came to die. That was the reason he came. And on his way to Jerusalem, down with that with the Galilean pilgrims, he had taught the parable of the pounds. And the lesson behind that parable was to correct the idea that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So that wasn't the purpose. So what was the purpose of the triumphal entry? There were two of them. One, to make an unequivocal claim to be Israel's Messiah. He knew Zechariah 9.9 which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus arranged everything to make the claim that he was fulfilling that prophecy and to claim to be the fulfillment of the Passover. You remember that we're told that the multitudes quoted Psalm 118, 
Psalm 118 was part of the Hallel Psalms, and Psalm 118 was sung after the Passover meal in celebration of the Passover. As they cited that passage, they were affirming what Jesus himself was claiming, and that is that he was the perfect fulfillment of all of those things. Of course, many were at the triumphal entry simply out of curiosity. The anticipation had been built up. Is he coming? They're saying they're going to arrest him. What's going to happen when Jesus shows up in Jerusalem? So there were a lot of reasons people were there on that Sunday morning as he presented himself. That brings us to Monday. Monday was a day of authority. It's when Jesus curses the fig tree as a picture of the cursing of first century Judaism because it had become a false religion. And he cleanses the temple for the same reason, to demonstrate his authority. And he basically took over the temple mount. This is a recreation of the temple mount in the time of Jesus. Herod the Great had built, picture like a shoebox built over a mountain. It was a huge platform, 35 acres, and in the middle of it was the temple proper. You see that large building jutting up. That's the, the main temple. The Holy of Holies was there, the holy place, and the front of that building was 150 feet by 150 feet. It was a huge, huge edifice. You see the colonnade on the far side. That's where a lot of teaching took place, including the teaching that takes place on Tuesday of the Passion Week, which is a day of conflict. There, Jesus' authority is questioned. That's when he tells the parables attacking the Jewish leaders. He tells the parable of the two sons, you remember, attacking their treatment of God's will. He tells the parable of the vineyard, uh, the treatment of God's son. He tells the parable of the wedding feast, the treatment of God's salvation. And then there's a, there are a series of questions that he's asked about tribute to Caesar, about the resurrection, about the greatest commandment, and then he himself asks the question, whose son is Messiah? And this is the day of his denunciation of the Pharisees. I cannot overemphasize this event. It's Tuesday of the, of the Passover week. Josephus estimates that as many as three to 400,000 people were on that 35 acres of real estate on the top of the Temple Mount gathered for the Passover. Jesus is there teaching huge crowds, and in the middle of that huge crowd, on their turf, Jesus pronounces seven woes on the leaders of the nation. He calls them out as snakes and vipers, as whitewashed tombs. Immediately following that is an interesting story, and I wish I had time to to teach it to you. If, if you haven't heard this perspective, go listen online to my message on the widow's mites. I, I, I really had to follow my mentor here, John MacArthur, because as I studied it myself, I came to exactly the same conclusion. The widow's mite story is not about you need to give everything you have. Jesus had just said in his woes against the the Pharisees, he has just said, they devour widows' houses. They take everything from these poor, destitute widows when they ought to be caring for them. And the widow's mite story is an illustration of that. Jesus sits there and watches this woman put in everything she has to live on. 
She has nothing. The system, the false religious system of first century Judaism, just like the health, wealth, and prosperity preachers of today, steal from the disadvantaged, steal from those who have nothing. Jesus is so angered by that, that he, not at the woman, but at the system. And he gets up and he walks across the Kidron Valley. He sits down on the Mount of Olives and he delivers the Olivet Discourse in which he says, not one stone you see will be left on another. It will be destroyed because it is a wicked system. Wednesday is a day of silence. Jesus himself rested. There's no record of anything that he did on that day. The Jewish leaders plotted how they were going to take Jesus, and they decided to wait until after the feast because they didn't want to create a riot. And in God's providence, guess who shows up? Judas. And so they have a way to get Jesus quietly. And so they launch the plan. Thursday is a day of preparation. Passover preparations by Peter and John. They've taken that Passover lamb they've been living with the required number of days to the temple, and there they, there they slaughter that lamb in the presence of the priest. The priest splatters its blood across the altar, and they take the carcass of that lamb, and they take it back to where the, where the Passover celebration will be celebrated in the upper room, and they roast it and prepare it for the Passover meal. And the Passover celebration takes place. Jesus arranged all of this so Judas didn't know. Judas didn't know where they were meeting. Why? Because Jesus didn't want Judas arriving early. He wanted that time with his disciples. He's looking out for his own. He's loving his own into the end. And so Judas couldn't know because Jesus wanted to celebrate the Passover with the eleven. And he does. Judas leaves, as you know, at some point during the Passover celebration, once they're finished, they go to Gethsemane. Jesus prays the high priestly prayer. He talks about the true vine. And then in Gethsemane, he predicts for the second time Peter's denial, prays in agony, and the disciples can't pray with him. Now that brings us to Friday, the day of crucifixion. Somewhere around 12 a.m., Jesus is betrayed by Judas and forsaken by the eleven. Around 1 a.m., and these are approximate times based on what we can piece together. Around 1 a.m., the first Jewish trial takes place. There were three Jewish trials. The first one is a kind of hearing of sorts in front of Annas, the former high priest and the father-in-law to the sitting high priest, Caiaphas. It happened in the court of Annas' home. They apparently shared a courtyard, Annas and his son-in-law Caiaphas, because somewhere shortly thereafter, somewhere around 2 a.m., a second Jewish trial takes place. This is an illegal trial. It's in the house of Caiaphas. They're in the same area, the west upper side of Jerusalem. Jesus is condemned and mocked and struck. What was the charge on which Jesus was convicted? Turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. This is the second Jewish trial somewhere around 2 a.m. on that Friday morning. Mark 14, and I want you to notice verse 61. The high priest was getting frustrated. Charges were being made. They wouldn't stick. The false witnesses couldn't even agree in their testimony. 
Jesus, verse 61, kept silent, did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Quote from Daniel's prophecy. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Jesus was convicted at the second Jewish trial of blasphemy, claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, it would have been illegal to have sentenced Jesus to death at night, and so the Sanhedrin had to wait until light began to dawn before they could formally condemn him. This was a requirement. It was during this time, of course, they began to abuse Jesus. Sometime after dawn, during that time of year in Israel, somewhere between 5 a.m. and 5.30 a.m. in that time frame, the third Jewish trial takes place. This occurs on the Temple Mount in the the chamber of hewn stone, as it was called, where the Sanhedrin officially met, and a formal verdict was reached. Jesus was guilty. It was in this time period that Judas is overwhelmed with regret, and he comes and tries to convince them when he learns Jesus has been convicted, tries to convince them to let him go, tries to return the money. They won't take it. And best we can reconstruct, Judas actually enters into the the court of the priest and hurls the silver so that it falls into the temple itself. And then he goes out and commits suicide. The three Jewish trials are followed by three Roman trials. Between 5.30 a.m. and 9 a.m., there's the first Roman trial before Pilate. Now these trials before Pilate and Herod occur at Herod's palace. You can see here is an ancient diagram, or a, a diagram rather, of the ancient city of Jerusalem. And you can see where the red arrow points. That's the palace of Herod. It's up on the upper side where they catch the sea breezes. As then as now, the best real estate was always high and always where the best breezes were. And that's where Herod built his palace. This is a reconstruction of the descriptions that are given us of Herod's palace, you can see it's, it's kind of dueling palaces, really, two of them with a courtyard between. This was the praetorium where Pilate and Herod both would have been staying. Just to the east of Herod's palace is an area, the agora, called the pavement. The trials of Jesus would have occurred there were the red arrow points, that, that tiled area. It was an open market in Agora. And then they would have brought him just inside the praetorium, the area where the palaces were. So it had been back and forth between these. First before Pilate in the praetorium. Second trial before Herod Antipas. And they, Herod would have been staying in the, same, in the other end of that dueling palace complex. So it was close, and there Jesus was mocked, treated with contempt. A gorgeous robe was put upon him. The third Roman trial before Jesus, I'm sorry, before Pilate, occurred shortly thereafter. And Pilate had Jesus scourged, mocked, and beaten, and declares him innocent, and then agrees to crucify him. About 6 a.m., Pilate's handed over to be crucified, 
They mock him and crucify him. Very briefly, you know the story. At 9 a.m., Jesus was crucified. From 9 to 12, several things happen. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. The soldiers gamble for his tunic. They put the charge above Christ's head. They're mocking Jesus. And Jesus says to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. And to Mary, woman, behold your son, John. He takes care of Mary. At 12 noon, a supernatural darkness falls. And really from noon to 3, nothing happens during most of those three hours. But near 3 p.m., several things happen. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm thirsty. It is finished. And then finally, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And Jesus gave up his spirit at 3 p.m. The miracles happen. From 3 to sunset, you remember that Joseph of Arimathea requests Jesus' body for burial. Nicodemus and Joseph prepare it for burial as the women watch. On Saturday, Jesus' body is buried. It's the the Sabbath, but the Sanhedrin requested that a guard be stationed. So the, the soldiers inspect the tomb, put a guard in place, the seal is set, and after sunset, ladies brought the bought additional spices to go on Sunday to anoint the body of Christ. And of course, Sunday is the day of resurrection. Begun with a severe earthquake, perhaps in conjunction with the resurrection, an angel descends, rolls away the stone, and then Jesus appears five separate times on that day to different groups to affirm all that he accomplished. I want to close by having you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, because it's here that Jesus' life, and specifically his passion, is brought together. Four events from the Passion Week form the foundation of the gospel. Verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the Scripture, and that he appeared. And a number of appearances are listed. Folks, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our hope. It's why the gospel writers spend so much time in their gospels on that final week in the life of our Lord, because that is the heart of our faith. And it's based on historical eyewitness testimony. Our faith is real. It's founded in a historical person who lived in a historical place, who died a death of great spiritual significance, dying for us. This is our Lord. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part four of his series, A Survey of the Life of Christ. Tom will begin a new series on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. But Tom, as we close our time together today, tell us again why having four gospel records in the Bible is so important for a survey of the life of Christ. You know, Bill, I would say they serve two great purposes. Obviously, the four gospels are the only four books that are a God-breathed, Spirit-inspired, authorized record of the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the Gospels, 
God has given us everything we need to know about Christ's life, death, and resurrection in order to come to genuine faith in him. That's the most important thing. But then beyond that, once we become believers, the Bible calls us as Christians to be like Jesus Christ. And what better example do we have than what is recorded for us of his life in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Those gospels not only tell us about Christ, but they really provide for us a blueprint for Christ-likeness, which is the goal of every believer. So friend, my question to you today is, do you know him? Have you trusted in him? And if you have, are you pursuing likeness to him? Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional series from The Word Unleashed. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. 